Take your Bibles and turn with us to the book of 2 Corinthians. The book of 2 Corinthians. It's part of the daily Bible reading. When I said last week that we'll get to the judgment seat of Christ, I thought, well, I better do it then. If I said that, I better do it. And so uh, we're going to end up there, but we do have a context to look at before we get there, which is part of what we dealt with last week. But let's look at those three verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9, 10, and 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 9, 10, and 11. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether it's good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences as well. And then Paul goes into the fact that he is not going to commend himself again to them if he doesn't have to do that. And there's a reason for that, and we'll take a look at that, but that's the, that's the, those are the verses that are our application today. Father, we pray in your precious name that you would open your word to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's go back to chapter 5, verse 1. For we know, for we know, for we know. I read this over and over and over and over and over again. It's been a pretty, pretty sorrowful week. And uh, I could not but read this passage of Scripture with uh, Marianne in mind. And uh, the Lord took all the sorrow out and put joy there for me. And I'll explain why in just a second. But I like Paul's remarks about his disposition, his attitude. When I read Scripture, I like to read all about facts, but I want to know what's, what's going on in Paul's heart. I want to know what's going on in his mind. I want to know what's going on in his emotions. And so Paul, speaking for the church, says, We know that if our earthly house, this tent, which no doubt refers to our physical body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, there are three ways that you and I can look at this passage of Scripture, but we need to be very, very careful. One way, and I would like to dismiss it right off the bat, and I'll explain in a minute why, because the Bible knows nothing about the fact that we have a physical body and um, it's going to be resurrected, it's going to be glorified, it's going to be spiritual, it'll be a body, but it's going to be eternal, it's going to be uh, immortal now instead of mortal, but the Bible knows no other body aside from that. But there are, and there, there are a, a lot of people who think that when we, our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, that we go to heaven and we get a temporary body. And I think it's a dangerous thing to do. Sometimes we need to, to, we need to look at Scripture a lot more carefully, every word, every phrase, and see what the implications are. Because what this has led, you know, that feeling, that idea has led us to the problems, such, some problems such as this. 
that it, it, we talk as if the soul can't exist without the body. Now, before we go any further, let me remind you that God is the God of the universe. He manifests Himself to us. He certainly has manifested Himself in Christ physically. But the Bible tells us that God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth, you see. Sometimes we think that the soul can't exist without the body, that it has no senses. It can't see, it can't hear, it gets just a spirit, you see. And I use the word spirit and soul interchangeably because it is used interchangeably in Scripture, all right? I don't want to complicate the nature of man here. We live in a day and age when we, uh, we have a, a scientific community that says that you and I are just biological matter. And as soon as we die, we're gone. That's it. There's nothing there. There's no soul. There's no spirit. When you're dead, you're dead. And that's it. But sometimes this idea of getting a temporary body in heaven gives us some sense that maybe the soul is unconscious without the body. Listen, I want to tell you something. Right off the bat, I want to tell you something. And you're going to see why I'm really pressing this issue this morning. Death of the body doesn't destroy the real you. It doesn't destroy the soul. It doesn't deprive the soul of a home. Now think about that just for a minute, and let me remind you of this illustration. You've heard this a couple of times over the years. I've shared it personally, but from the pulpit probably a couple of times. But you'll remember that this family had, this house had burned down, and here's this family standing there on the sidewalk with the ruins of their house behind them, and a reporter comes up to them, and he looks at all the members of the family, and he decides to talk to the youngest little girl. So he sticks the microphone in her face, and he says, what are you going to do now? that your home has been destroyed. She looks at him and says, My, our home hasn't been destroyed. We just don't have a house to put it in at the moment. See? See? Now, there's a second way to look at this passage of Scripture, and that second way is very popular, and we do it all the time, and I think it makes a great application. And that's this. In chapter 5, verse 1, we could say this. For we know that if our earthly house, our physical body, this dead is destroyed, we have a resurrected body from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We could look at it that way. And a lot of people do. And you get that sense from several translations of Scripture. And by the way, uh, sometimes uh, the heading above that says something about the assurance of a resurrection. And you can do that. But here's the problem that I have with that particular understanding of this particular passage of Scripture. If you look at this passage of Scripture and you see that it says that if our body is destroyed, don't worry about that. You and I are going to get a resurrected body, and that is true. But you see, what it does is it takes Paul's thinking totally out of that period of time between death 
and the second coming of Christ. And he doesn't even then deal with it in this particular passage of Scripture. That's the problem I have with that. When in reality, the Apostle Paul is focusing on what life is like, what it is like for those looking at the prospect of death and what it will mean for them in heaven at the present time. See, that's the, that's the problem. Makes perfect application. We can, we can use it. We can go through this whole passage of Scripture and refer to the body, resurrected body, but we skip over that time period between death and the second coming of Christ. And the thing that I really, really, really became, I mean, God took the sorrow out of my heart when I was thinking of uh, Marianne this week because of this period of time that Paul is talking about between death and the second coming of Christ, you see. Now, surely when you look at this passage of Scripture, and I'm looking at it from the New King James, so we're looking at a pretty literal word order here. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. First and foremost, this passage of Scripture ought to deal with Paul's problem where he's looking at the prospects of death, and in looking at that prospects of death, he says, you know what, I don't need to worry about it because it's just a transfer from one house, my physical body, to another house, heaven, eternal. He's not comparing body to body here, he's comparing house to house. And you say, why is that so important, Pastor? Why is that so important? Well, don't you always wonder, you know, we, we have, you talk to 100 people about what life is like for those who have, have died in the Lord even. You talk about that, and you'll get many, 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 many ideas of what it must be like. God wants us to understand, you know, have you ever wondered why God doesn't describe for us? Because what's the biggest question? How on earth can the Spirit walk and talk and, 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 and see and hear and express emotion? How is that possible without a physical body? Well... Ask God that question, what's he going to tell you? I talk, I hear, I see, I walk. You see what I'm saying? See, it's critical for us to understand that this is, this is like a graduation ceremony for Marianne. It's like a graduation ceremony for her. It's far better. It's far better than what she's had to put up with. Far better. But you see, sometimes we say, oh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, 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 it's okay, but it's really not the best. The best thing would be to look forward to the resurrected body. It's coming. It's coming. And there's a reason for it. The reason we need resurrected bodies is because God has determined that we're going to live here on this earth eternally. Jesus is returning to this earth. He's going to do a new heaven and a new earth. And he had determined that life, but listen, life is no problem in heaven for those who've had to shed the body. 
Now, I want you to, um, I want you to look at Paul's next comment in verse 2. For in this we groan. So Paul is saying we groan about this. Now, this groan, this first groan, is a positive groan. It's not a negative groan. It's not one of those groans where, oh, oh, Lord, please help me. It's a positive groan. In this we groan. How do you know it's a positive groan? What does he say next? Because we're earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. You see, we can move from earth. We can move from our physical house to heaven. And that's an exciting prospect. There's really a lot to think about that's good about that. Now, notice what he says here. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Nobody in heaven is naked. Now, you know it's a metaphor, you see. It's a metaphor for the fact that they are clothed in heaven. Clothed with heaven. See? And, 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 and God wants us to understand, God wants to understand that that's really, really very, very important for us. You see? And he wants us to, you know, here, look at it this way. Look at it this way. Paul says, the last thing that I want is to not be able to transfer from my physical house to my, to my eternal heaven. I, I, that would be the worst thing that could happen to me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not told so, I would have told you, you see. That would be the worst thing that happened to me. So imagine if for just a minute. I, I do this a lot, you see. So imagine that, that you're in heaven, okay, and God takes away all of heaven, takes the real estate away. He takes the glory away. He just takes heaven away. You'd be lost in space. Right? You would be homeless. And that's the point. God says you're not homeless. You're not lost in space. You know, and then he has a second burden here. And the second burden, the second groan is in verse 4. For we who are in this tent groan, and this groan is a negative one. The first one is a positive groan. The second one is a negative groan. And notice in the second one, he says, For we who are in this tent groan. Why? Because we are burdened. Why are we burdened? Not because we want to shed our bodies. You know? Who wants to really do that? No, not because we want to shed our bodies, but we want to be further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, keep, keep the theme here. Paul is looking at the prospects of death. He is burdened. All I need to do is give you one, and there are many passages of Scripture in First and Second Corinthians. You've read them over very, very carefully. But Paul is admitting that his body is wearing out. Paul is admitting that his body is wearing down. When you look at the sufferings he has had for Christ alone, in verse uh, chapter twenty, chapter eleven, verse twenty-four, and following of Second Corinthians, and he refers to these problems. The outward man is perishing. 
But the inward man is being renewed every day. Notice what he says in verse 24. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night in the day and have, and, and, and have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. And I'm going to tell you something, that works on you physically. He continues in verse 27. He continues... And he has expressed those sentiments all through these two books. So Paul says we groan. We groan because we're weary. We're burdened. We're burdened. We don't want to be unclothed. We don't want to. It's not an idea of us wanting to shed the body. But listen, the body is wearing out. It's wearing down. And I want to be further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now notice... If I want to apply this to my resurrected body, and I want to skip over this whole period of time when we're in heaven, when people are in heaven, if I want to do that, I would probably replace it with the word mortality may be swallowed up by what? Immortality. But notice what he says. Mortality may be swallowed up by life. Life. I I used that illustration of Benson last week where he talked about his, his songwriting father uh, thinking that um, leaving the party was like leaving, leaving earth, dying was like leaving the party before the party was over. You remember that? And um, until I realized he said that the party is happening somewhere else. Now that's true. Whether we want to accept it or not, they're having more joy and uh, fun in a good way in heaven than we are having here. That's implied here very, very carefully. Um, And, you know, I've used this illustration a lot when we do funerals. Paul Azinger, I'm going to use it right now. Paul Azinger was at the height of his professional golf career when the doctor told him he had a threatening disease. Up to that moment, he had not given much thought to dying. Life was all too consuming for him. He was having the time of his life golfing and all of that. He says, but he remembers, he remembers what the chaplain said to him on the tour. We think that we are in the land of the living going to the land of the dying. When in reality, we are in the land of the dying headed for the land of the living. Now, you either believe it or you don't. You might walk out here and say, well, well, yeah, that's nice. You know, I'll tell you what. If you had the insight of the Apostle Paul and you knew him as close to the Lord as closely as he knew the Lord, you would say amen to everything he says here. Amen to everything he says here. Listen, to you, you look, at, look at Hebrews chapter 12. I love, I love how the Bible describes the real estate of heaven. The many mansions and the hillsides and the, and the river of life and the, and the countryside and all that. I just love it. It's just so gorgeous. Streets of gold. I, that's just wonderful stuff. 
But I'll tell you what, I love even better than that how God describes the, uh, the, the fellowship in heaven. He says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. Now, he had already talked about the difference between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, and he wants to use Mount Zion as a description of heaven. So we've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of what? Angels. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. And by the way, uh, I love it when theologians really, really tackle this issue and say, you know what, let's be honest with ourselves. God has a registry, and the registry doesn't separate those in heaven from those on earth. God includes everybody together because God looks at us as if we are one corporate unity. Some of us on earth, some of us in heaven. Look at what he says in verse 23. We, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Our spirits don't get to be perfect until we, we go to heaven, by the way. Regardless of what people may tell you, that some people will tell you your spirit is perfect. Your spirit is not perfect. It's perfect once you get to heaven. We have to live with all kinds of um, uh, problems until then. And then who else is there in verse 24? To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. This is, and, and the impression of this passage of Scripture, the impression of this passage of Scripture is that it's the responsibility of those who are hosting us in heaven to make sure that we're all having a good time. It's implied in the passage. Like a, the way it would be stated in the Bible, it's like you're attending a festival. You're attending a festival. So the Apostle Paul says, you're saying, how are you getting to the judgment seat of Christ here with all of this? Well, see, this is leading up to the judgment seat of Christ, you see. This is, that's the, the therefore in verse 9 includes what we've just read. So you have to have that in your mind when you think of the judgment seat of Christ. Because for you and me, the judgment seat of Christ ought to be an exciting thing. An exciting thing, you say. So keep, uh, so let's, let's finish it off. So the Apostle Paul now says to us, he says in verse 5, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. God's the one who planned it all out. God's the one who put it together. This is God's will, His purpose, His plan. It's all working the way He wants it to work. And then notice what he says next. And not only that is it God's plan, but He has given to us the Spirit as a guarantee. He has given to us a spirit as a guarantee. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to older people on their deathbeds and they say, don't worry about me, I know where I'm going. That's the Holy Spirit. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people on their deathbed and they're totally at peace and they're anticipating it. That's the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is the one who encourages us and strengthens us and prepares us for that time. Verse 5. 
So we are always confident. The result of that now is that we're always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are what? Everybody together, absent from the Lord. And because of that confidence given to us by God himself through the Holy Spirit, we walk by faith, not by sight. And everybody together, verse 8, we are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. My favorite theologian. I've never told you who my favorite theologian is, have I? I've never told you. He preached it. He, he taught at Princeton Theological Seminary back in the 1800s, and his name is Archibald Alexander Hodge. He's my absolute favorite. He's my absolute favorite. And I love what he says about this passage of Scripture. Paul's desire is not the resurrection. Paul's desire is not the change what the living believer is to experience at Christ's coming, as if we're going ahead to the second coming. But it's, and he says it so succinctly, it's the state of glory immediately subsequent to death. It's the state of glory immediately subsequent to death. Now, Archibald goes on to say that, you know, we have plenty of passages of Scripture. If you want to deal with the resurrection body, we have, plenty, we have passages. You know, Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, verse 11 is one of those passages of Scripture that talks about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is a pledge or a guarantee of our, the future life of the body. So there are plenty of passages of Scripture to deal with that. We're just dealing with what happen, what's happening right now. Tell you what, can't even talk about it. Can't even talk about it. And the reason why we can't even talk about it is because 2 Corinthians tells us that Paul was translated to heaven, and when he came back, he says, I just can't speak about it. That's what we're going to deal with, by the way. We're going to deal with that in Sunday school. Scott is not here. He asked me if I would do the Sunday school for him, and I said I would. And so we're going to take a good look at that passage of Scripture. So... What does that have to do with the judgment seat of Christ? Now, you all know that the Apostle Paul in verses 9, 10, and 11 tells us that we all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's referring to those Isthmian games or the Olympic games where you had the judges sitting on a seat overlooking the stadium, overlooking the arena, and he sat there and he was waiting to get the results of the runners or the, or, the, or, the, uh, or the activities that were going on. And when he got the results of that, then they would bring the winners to that stage where they could give them their reward. That's, the, that's what Paul uses. He is writing to the Corinthians, which had the Isthmian Games, which is equivalent to the Olympian Games, Every four years they had the Olympic Games in ancient Greece. And every two years they had the Isthmian Games. It's kind of like the Summer and Winter Olympics. So it's with anticipation, you see. It's with anticipation that we look forward to the judgment seat of Christ. I hope. Listen, if you're not, you know, 
it's, you know, if, if, you're, if you're not into what the Apostle Paul is saying, let me simply say this. If you're really not interested in, and not into what the Apostle Paul is saying, and you really don't, can't, can't really say in your heart, well, you know, I, want, I got a lot of work yet to do, so I don't want to go home yet, but, you know, it's much better to be there than here, if you can't say that. Let me suggest that the time may come when it's like you going to a fancy dinner engagement where you've invited, and instead of going with your nice clothes or whatever, you're walking in with dirty, muddy clothes. That would be pretty embarrassing, wouldn't it? There are going to be people embarrassed at the judgment seat of Christ. But hopefully that's not going to be us. Now, I realize that there are all kinds of rewards. God's going to reward you for things that you had no idea he was going to reward you for. Believe me, there are lots of things that you're going to get rewarded for that you have no idea. You're going to say, Lord, I, when did I do that? When did I give you a cup of water? You see, that kind of a thing. That's going to happen. That's going to happen. And there are going to be those who get greater rewards than other rewards. It's kind of like a graduation ceremony. I graduated in 1970 at Connellsville Area High School. And I sat there. I sat there and I watched the valedictorian get up and speak. And I watched the salutatorian get up and speak. I watched, I watched the awards go for the highest honors, the next highest honors. I watched as scholarships went. But I'll tell you what, even though I wasn't getting any of those rewards, I sat where I was excited to the core to be there because I knew I was graduating. That's okay. That's the way heaven's going to be. But it's true. A lot of people are going to get rewards than others, you see. But why do I bring this to your attention here? Why do you think the... What's one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul... Paul has been constantly judged at the court of human opinion, and he brings it up probably a dozen times or more in First and Second Corinthians. You call me a liar. You don't believe what I say. You think I'm fickle. You don't think I know what I'm talking about. Even in 1 Corinthians, he didn't get into 1 Corinthians but the fourth chapter when he said, listen, why don't you just hold all of your judgment till judgment day and let the Lord sort it, out, sort it all out. He'll be fair. He'll be just. He'll know what to do. That's what Paul does in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, you say. You see, because God knows exactly how to reward and we can put our lives in his hands. Now, I, I wanted to give you a lot of what this reward was going to include, but I don't think I need to do that. I don't think I need to do that. I want to deal with one last illustration here. And I want to do it because I want you to understand how exciting it must be to be in heaven right now. All right? How exciting it's got to be in heaven. Now, there are lots of, uh, there are lots, and th uh, this will only take a couple of minutes, but I'm using the longest form of this illustration that we've heard time and time and time again. An old missionary couple had been working in Africa for years, and they were returning to New York City to retire. They had no pension. Their health was broken. They were defeated, discouraged, and afraid. They discovered they were booked on the same ship as President Teddy Roosevelt, who was returning for one of his big game hunting expeditions. No one paid attention to them. They watched the fanfare that accompanied the president's entourage with passengers trying to catch a glimpse of this great man. And as the ship moved across the ocean, the old missionary said to his wife, you know, something's wrong. Why should we have given our lives in faithful service to God in Africa all these years and have no one care a thing about us? 
Here this man comes back from a hunting trip and everybody makes much over him, but nobody gives two hoots about us. Otherwise, honey, you shouldn't feel, dear, you shouldn't feel that way. I can't help it. It doesn't seem right. When the ship docked in New York, a band was waiting to greet the president. The mayor and other dignitaries were there. The papers were full of the president's arrival. But no one noticed the missionary couple. They slipped off the ship, found a cheap flat on the east side, hoping the next day to see what they could do to make a living in the city. This man's spirit was broke. His wife said to him, he said to his wife, I can't take this. God is not treating us fairly. His wife replied, why don't you go to the bedroom and talk to the Lord about that? And a short time he came out of the bedroom and he says, you know, the Lord has settled it for me. I told him how bitter I was. I told him how I felt about the president receiving all that tremendous homecoming when no one met us. And God reminded me, but you're not home yet. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word, such an encouragement to us. And I thank you, Lord, that it fell on the daily Bible reading for today and last week. And I just pray that you would help us, help us to realize that we really have more up there than we do down here. That we should have more up there than down here. Lord, we look forward to the day when you return to this earth. And if we're alive and remain and you transform our bodies right then and there on the spot after we've waited for you to transform all of those and raise the dead. Father, we're excited about that. But Lord, help us to be excited about what's going on right now in heaven. Jesus, in your most precious name, we pray. Amen.